0: For today, what we're going to do is, after the lecture, we have a lab, and I have your handouts with a list of anatomical structures that you are supposed to uh, identify and remember for the lab exam, for the practical exam regarding the brain. And I'm going to bring all the materials and also some human brains so you can identify all these parts you see in the human brains are uh, prepared and involved. You did the sheep brain last time, you will see the difference with the human brain. And also, of course, the models, where we see most of the structures uh, that we study. Here on this table, I placed um, review sheets that have been graded and recorded, so you can pick them up at any time. Uh, still have the exercise <coughs> 21, which is, uh, will be graded for next uh, for next week. So today is our last session for this week. Next week we'll meet on the 29th. And on Thursday, December the 1st, we have the midterm, midterm number four. So should expect to find a study guide soon on the website so you can uh, focus your study. Okay, so let's start with the central nervous system part three. And today we're going to start studying the membranes that protect the brain. The brain is inside the cranial cavity, but is protected by membranes that we call meninges. These meninges, besides protecting the central nervous system, that means brain and the spinal cord, they are around both brain and the spinal cord, the meninges. They also protect blood vessels, blood vessels that are providing blood supply to the brain and spinal cord. The third thing about the meninges is that they contain the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. In between two of them, they provide a space where this CSF circulates. So the brain, as we see it, It is protected by these membranes, and these membranes contain fluid. So it's like the brain is actually kind of floating or surrounded by a cushion of fluid that protects it against the bone. If um, if you ever see a brain, fresh brain, you will see that it's really fragile, very soft, and even softer than gelatin and it can easily be damaged if hits against the bone. So that's one of the reasons it is well protected by these membranes called meninges and by the fluid that surrounds it. Besides, the last thing about meninges, they form partitions in the skull. So they provide different divisions like walls and divide compartments that we will mention. Well, these membranes are three. First is called mater second, arachnoid mater, and third, pia mater, in that order, from external to internal. So if we open the cranial cavity, we open a window like we do in neurosurgery, we remove the bone. The first thing we find is the dura mater. We open the dura mater, and we find the other two in that sequence. This graph is showing how the membranes are arranged, starting from the skin. We open the skin, then the next layer will be the periosteum, which is the membrane covering the bone of the skull. Then we find the bone, and under the bone, the dura mater. And notice here the dura mater has two layers, two components one component which is called periosteal and the second component called meningeal but the periosteal is strongly attached to the inner part of the bone and the meningeal is a proper dura mater surrounding the brain next layer arachnoid and the third layer the innermost called pia mater notice that in between the arachnoid and pia mater there is a blood vessel running Blood vessels running here, artery and a vein. So these blood vessels are running in a space here, this space. And this is the same space where we find CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. That space is called subarachnoid space because it's under the arachnoid. Actually, between the arachnoid and P there's this space where the blood vessels run and where the CSF cerebral spinal fluid is found. Other thing we see in the in this picture is these structures. Or these this structure called folk cerebri, folk cerebri, and if you notice, is an extension of the dura mater. And this folk cerebri, it's like a wall that divides both cerebral hemispheres. We'll see that uh, in a different picture. And on this side of the graph, we have this structure called superior sagittal sinus, which stands for veins. Sinus is a vein in this case. Superior sagittal sinus is a big vein running in the midline, in the midline of the um, cranial cavity. And it's surrounded by the meninges, especially the dura mater. Here are the labels for the spaces, subarachnoid space, the one that I mentioned. And there's another one called subdural space, which is just below the dura mater. So the mater, let's describe one by one. The, uh, this is the strongest meninges, the strongest meninges. It's very fibrous, and as we saw in the picture, it is composed by two layers, periosteal and the meningeal layer. These two layers are mostly fused, as we see here, except in areas where they form the sinuses, like the superior sagittal sinus that we saw in the picture before. Sinuses are veins. They collect venous blood from the brain. In all of them, they will come down to the jugular, the internal jugular vein, which brings blood from, um, from the brain. The extensions or partitions of the dura mater, we call them dural septa, that stands for dural walls or dividers. And there are three: the falx cerebri, which is located in the longitudinal fissure, in between both cerebral hemispheres; the falx cerebelli, in between both hemispheres of the cerebellum. It's more posterior. And the tentorium cerebelli, which divides the cerebrum from the cerebellum posteriorly, and it is located in the transverse fissure. Transverse fissure, we define as between the cerebrum and the cerebellum posteriorly. So this dura mater provides all these partitions, extensions to divide all these places. And this is how we see how we see all these divisions. In this picture, we have removed all the brain tissue, and we just left the meninges, the dura mater, with all their their extensions. Falx cerebri, it's like the midline wall. <coughs> Tentorium cerebelli divided the cerebrum and cerebellum. The cerebellum will actually be here in this space and the cerebrum on top of the tentorium. Falc cerebelli is a very small one, which is in the midline also, very small, but divides both uh, cerebellar hemispheres, uh, hemispheres, cerebellum, the two sides of the cerebellum. This membrane is really thick. <clears throat> when we do dissection of cadavers, and this is one of the pictures taken from a uh, dissection of the head, uh, where we see the different layers. Parietal bone, we open and remove uh, the parietal bone and we can see the durameter, the surface of the durameter. It's a very thick membrane, it's not transparent, it's completely white and shiny. Yeah. That's a real picture, an
1: actual
0: picture? Yeah, it is a real picture we're of a... We figure that out last week. Huh? We were trying to figure that out last week. Yeah. yeah, it is a real picture, it's a posterior view, so they have removed all this part right here. And in um, one side, we can see the mater, which is this, like looks like silver in the picture, but it's actually white. Um, and the other half, we can see the surface of the brain tissue. So during a surgery, for instance, when we open the cranial cavity, this is what we see, we find the meninges the dura mater, and they have to open a window in the dura mater and get access to the, uh, deeper to the brain. The cerebellum is down here. So all this is the cerebellum, which is also covered by the meninges, the dura mater here. The blue lines or the blue things that you see are the veins that we call the superior sagittal sinus, which is running in the midline. And there are one more called transverse sinus right in here, right under the tentorium. Here we see the tentorium is this line of the meninges dividing the cerebrum and the cerebellum. In the pictures, it's really hard to see the arachnoid in the mater. We cannot see it very well. Uh, we have to see that in the the, sections, the anatomical pieces, hopefully in one of the brains that I bring today will be able to see these membranes and I'll show you how they look. So the second layer, the arachnoid, is a middle layer and it contains kind of like spider web web stations. Uh, There's a space here between the dura and the arachnoid, and the dura mater and the arachnoid, that's what we call subdural. The subarachnoid space is the one below or under the arachnoid, and this is where the CSF and blood vessels are running. Arachnoid granulations, what are arachnoid granulations? These are projections that go from the arachnoid to the dura- through the dura mater into the superior sinus and they help for reabsorption of this fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid. This cerebrospinal fluid is produced all the time. Produced and it has to be reabsorbed. It circulates. And the arachnoid granulations can be seen here, I'm gonna highlight it here, arachnoid granulation, and this kind of projections that get into the superior sagittal sinus. They help for reabsorption of the fluid The fluid is in the subarachnoid space. The CSF or cerebrospinal fluid. And the third, innermost membrane is called the pia mater. Very fine connective tissue, very tightly attached to the brain tissue. It follows everything. Gyra, gyra, and sulci, every convolution. And it contains very, very small blood vessels that are feeding the brain tissue. Now let's talk about the cerebrospinal fluid. That fluid circulating in this subarachnoid space. As we said at the beginning, it's a liquid cushion that will protect the brain. And not only protection, but also provides nutrition and carries chemical signals. For instance, when we hold our breath, we are supposed to breathe out carbon dioxide. But if we are not breathing it out, the carbon dioxide will stay in our blood. And when it reaches certain levels, we will find ex- excessive amount of carbon dioxide in the cerebrospinal fluid. And the cerebrospinal fluid is bathing neurons. The neurons will detect that increase in carbon dioxide levels and will send signals for you to start breathing again. That's what happens when you hold your breath under the water after a minute or before that. You feel the need to breathe because your neurons are detecting that you're not breathing carbon dioxide is increased in the cerebrospinal fluid. So it contains many things. It's watery, but it contains proteins, different ion concentrations, different than the plasma, but they contain all these uh, proteins and uh, uh, electrolytes like sodium, potassium, hydrogen, bicarbonate. Cerebrospinal fluid is made by cells from the choroid plexus which are located inside the ventricles. CSF is filtered, is created at this point at the choroid plexus, and the cells called ependymal cells, which we mentioned in Neuroglia, they use different types of pumps to control the composition of the CSF, sodium pump, potassium pump, and uh, approximately 150 milliliters of CSF circulates, meaning it is replaced every eight hours. And in this one, we see the sequence, the way that this cerebrospinal circulates in the brain. Following the numbers, starting with number one, choroid plexus, is produced in each ventricle, inside the ventricles. And circulates there in all ventricles and then gets out to the subarachnoid space. How it gets out, there are two openings by which this CSF gets around the brain into the subarachnoid space. Here, number two, we see that through the arrows showing how it's going out. And then we see the fluid circulating all around the brain. The number three is showing that. CSF flows through the subarachnoid space and if you follow it all around the brain, all around the cerebellum, and even around the spinal cord, as you see here. So this CSF is surrounding the brain and spinal cord. And finally, number four, the arachnoid granulations are responsible for the reabsorption of, these, um, of this fluid into the superior sagittal sinus, to the vein. So in that way, this CSF is produced by the plexus by ependymal cells, and it has its own system of circulation. It gets out through the median aperture or median opening and lateral opening and get outside around the brain. Now, this uh, cerebrospinal fluid and uh, cells of the brain they compose a, a barrier. We call this the blood brain barrier, which protects the brain tissue and the neurons from many toxic substances that may be present in the blood and control the nutrients that the neurons receive and the chemical signals. Tight junctions, which is a type of connection between cells, are located here. They are completely impermeable. They don't allow many, many substances go through. And uh, before getting into the neurons, the chemical substances from the blood, they have to go through the endothelium of the blood vessels. So the cells are a component of the blood vessels. A basal lamina, which is like a barrier between that surrounds all of the blood vessels, the capillary blood vessels, and then astrocytes which are neuroglia or glial cells that we studied already. The astrocytes are surrounding the blood vessels and providing these barriers, so the neurons are protected against many toxic substances. In a picture, we see it like this. You see the astrocyte, and it's sending many projections, and all those projections are surrounding the blood vessels or capillary blood vessels. So, the substances that go through the blood and want to get into the neurons, they have to go through the wall of the blood vessel, the basal lamina, which is a, like a barrier in between, and an astrocyte, and then it reaches the neuron. That's one of the reasons also, because there's a lot of astrocytes. That's the most abundant type of neuroglial glial cell. So this barrier is selective. It will not allow many things to go through, but certainly it allows nutrients to go into the neurons. Metabolic wastes, some drugs, proteins, potassium, amino acids may be denied because they can hurt the neurons. Fat soluble substances, they go through easily like alcohol anesthetics. They reach the neurons very easily because they are fat-soluble. They can go through the membrane of these cells very easily. But some medications won't go through. That's why when someone has meningitis of infections of the brain, the nervous system, we have to give them special medications that we know that they are able to cross this barrier. Not all antibiotics cross this barrier. It's only some of them. And in some areas, there's no barrier because the neuron has to detect components running in the blood. And that's what the vomiting center, hypothalamus, there are some places that don't have this barrier and uh, they detect changes in the blood very easily. The brain is very fragile, I said. And is subject to many types of injuries. The thing that is very common is called concussion, which is temporary. Sometimes hard to say, because usually imagine someone has an accident and hits the head against the windshield or any other object, uh, comes to the emergency unconscious or disoriented. And what we have to do is, of course, take CT scans and make sure that there's no fractures, and so and at the same time, we'll see the brain. But if we see no lesion, meaning no bleeding, the brain is okay, and the CT scan, nothing is, seems to be wrong, and the patient is still disoriented or unconscious sometimes, that may be a concussion, which means That is a temporary alteration in the function. After some hours, sometimes minutes or hours, patient just wakes up and gets better with some headache, but we don't see any damage to the brain, which is mostly uh, presented as bleeding. The contusion is a permanent damage. Contusion means that there is bleeding, for instance, or there is some destruction of some part of the brain tissue that we can see with the CT scan. And sometimes the symptoms are the same. The patient is unconscious, disoriented. But we can tell by by the imaging studies. Other type of injury is called hemorrhage, which is bleeding. That may happen in different blood vessels, but it depends where the blood vessel is. We will see subarachnoid or subdural because the blood vessel may be going through the subdural space and it breaks and it starts bleeding to that space. Or it bleeds into the subarachnoid uh, space, and we call that subarachnoid hemorrhage. And cerebral edema, which is a swelling associated with any type of trauma. In concussion, there is sometimes edema but it can be resolved in terms of hours, sometimes in days, but there's no important damage to the brain. As any other tissue of the body, it gets swollen because of trauma, inflammation. But it's dangerous here up here because the cranial cavity is a very enclosed space. There's no more room for anything else. So if the brain starts swelling, then it's very dangerous because it can, uh, the brain can be damaged. So there are specific treatments for that to prevent the swelling of the brain in cases of trauma. For someone with concussion that comes to the emergency unconscious, we make sure that there's no cerebral edema because that may be the thing that kills that person. Usually called strokes, technically are called CVAs, or cerebrovascular accidents. It's so usually because of obstruction ischemia ischemia is a term for a tissue or cells which are deprived of blood supply and start to die maybe a blockage of some blood vessel of the brain or a clot that travels and obstructs some blood vessel and if the blood is not reaching the neurons or the neurons will first suffer and then die if they don't receive enough blood supply. And one of the most common symptoms or signs is called hemiplegia, which stands for paralysis. Paralysis, but only one side of the body. That's what happens usually in a stroke. The symptoms are all of a sudden the person or gets unconscious or not unconscious sometimes. Sometimes but they lose the function of the motor function and sensory function in half of the body, meaning both upper and lower limb. They cannot be moved. There is a time at which the neurons start suffering and start dying, so that's why there are many programs in different hospitals, stroke programs, which are about detecting people having a stroke early so they can do treatments to prevent the death of neurons there are many people that benefit from that but people have to recognize learn how to recognize that they're getting a stroke and uh, sometimes that's the hard part other diseases compromising the brain alzheimer's alzheimer's degeneration of the brain tissue and if the neurons die anywhere and mostly spread all around the brain in different areas of the brain. The result is called dimension, which is a term that stands for loss of functions that we usually call complex functions, like memory loss, short attention span, disorientation, eventual language loss, and problems of the mood, irritability, confusion, and even hallucinations. It is a progressive degeneration, so when it starts, it goes down in time. Sometimes quick, sometimes slower, but it goes down. There is nothing we can do to stop it, so far. And the main problem seems to be some proteins that look to be malfunctioning and form these deposits called neurofibrillary tangles inside the neurons. And these tangles will interfere with the work of the neuron and the neuron progressively will start dying. We can see that in the CT scan, on MRI, in advanced cases, the brain actually shrinks of all these sulci grooves of the brain that we see, they get bigger, because there's less neurons, uh, little by little. In physiologic studies, we can see how the neurons work normally, and in a person with Alzheimer, all those empty spaces that look blue in the Alzheimer, side are areas of the brain that are not functioning because there's not enough neurons. Most of them have been degenerated. And depending on where those neurons die is where the symptoms are more pronounced. Some people have more loss of memory than others. Some other people get more irritable, uh, changes in the mood. It's unpredictable how the symptoms are gonna be in every, in every person. But what is true and common to all is that it gets worse and worse and worse with the time. Other problem is called Parkinson's disease. And I think we mentioned this a little bit because it's the degeneration of neurons and the midbrain in the area called substantia nigra. And not only, but also and neurons located in the basal nuclei, which is in the very central part, gray matter inside the brain. Common thing of these areas, they work with a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And the main symptom is shaking, tremors, at rest. Treatment is with L-DOPA, which helps the neurons to Produce more dopamine, at least temporarily, and relieving the symptoms to some point. How to assess the central nervous system dysfunction? There is a specific sequence that can be used, standing for the most simple, which is assessment of the reflexes. If you assess a reflex, even in the patellar tendon, and you are assessing the spinal cord. The spinal That means the spinal cord at that level is working fine and all the pathways are good. If you don't find reflexes, it might be indication of some problem of the central nervous system in the spinal cord. That's the beginning point. And then the neurological examination, which is very thorough, and um, imaging, CT scan, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, PET, positron emission, tomography, which are studies that give us images. Images where we can see tumors, lesions, plaques in the case of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Even radioactive substances can be injected and we can trace them and see how they uh, are distributed in the neurons. When we look for problems of the blood vessels, and geography studies are made, which is about to inject a substance that we can see it when we put the patient on x-rays or CT scans. And actually, we see the blood vessels and we can tell if some of them is bleeding or have a problem. Finally, ultrasound can be used to assess the blood flow through the arteries and the brain. So, those about the brain. This is the last part of the brain uh, that was mostly related with meninges, cerebrospinal fluid, and to talk about some problems or diseases of the brain. Now, let's go to the part of the spinal cord. Spinal cord, also central nervous system. It is located in the vertebral column in the vertebral canal, which is that area formed by all the vertebrae located, one on top of the other. The beginning of the spinal cord is in the foramen magnum, the bone marking of the occipital bone. That's where the medulla lungata, uh connects to the spinal cord. And the end of the spinal cord is between the vertebrae, lumbar vertebrae, L1, or L2. What is the spinal cord for? It's a structure that brings all the nerve fibers, all the axons coming from the brain. And it's not only one direction, but two-way communication. Orders come from the cerebral cortex and run down, and things that we perceive with the sensory receptors in the skin, for instance, they go up to the brain. It's a two-way communication. There are ascending fibers and descending fibers. And it's a center of reflexes because there are neurons also in the spinal cord. The spinal cord has all these white matter fibers, but it's also neurons, gray matter substance. It is also surrounded by meninges, surrounded by cerebrospinal fluid dura mater is around the spinal cord but it's different than the brain in the brain the dura attaches to the bone of the cranial cavity here in this case there's no attachment to the vertebrae and that determines a space called epidural space epidural space which is above the dura mater same way as in the brain Cerebrospinal fluid is circulating in the subarachnoid space, which is between the arachnoid and the pia mater. These two membranes, the dura, arachnoid, they go all the way to the sacrum and get attached to the sacrum bone uh, below the L1, L2. So it keeps surrounding the, the spinal cord even beyond the end point. When we see the spinal cord in a picture from a posterior view like this, we can describe segments. Segments that are called cervical thoracic lumbar. And that's because there are nerves coming out of the spinal cord that we call spinal nerves. Another thing we see is that at the cervical level, it's thicker. The spinal cord is thicker. We call that cervical enlargement. And also, at the lumbar region, it is thicker. And we call that the lumbar enlargement. The conus medullaris is the end of the spinal cord. And from beyond that point, we can only see just roots of nerves that we call cauda equina. The cauda equina means and stands actually for horsetail. And it looks like a horsetail. There's also a bunch of fibers running beyond the end of the spinal cord. Phylon terminale is a filament, a ligament that connects the end of the spinal cord to the sacrum and coccyx bone of the vertebral column. In that way the spinal cord is well fixed all the way from the uh, cranial cavity to the sacral bone. One of the procedures, one of the procedures that is performed here at this level is called the spinal puncture or lumbar puncture. What for? To get a sample of CSF. Why we need a sample? Well, we need to get some CSF to diagnose. Diagnose what? Mostly infections of the central nervous system. Imagine someone with meningitis or infection of the brain, encephalitis, and we need to know what the germ, what the bacteria responsible is. We need to get a sample of CSF because since... Meninges are surrounded, brain and spinal cord, and CSF is circulating all around the brain and spinal cord. If we take a sample of CSF, that same fluid is going all over. So it's a very good sample that will tell us if there's some infection. And actually we find there, we find white blood cells, even bacteria can be found and help to make the diagnosis and give the proper treatment. So the lumbar puncture is about inge- uh, 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 inserting a needle in between two vertebrae at the levels of L4, L3, L4, or L5, to make sure that we're not getting the spinal cord. So the needle has to go through all the superficial layers. It goes through the dura mater and into the subarachnoid space. And we get a sample. But in the subarachnoid spaces, where all the these roots and spinal cord are. Well, we have to make sure that there's no spinal cord there. Spinal cord ends at L1, L2, and the needle goes to L3, L4, L5. So there's no spinal cord there. And the needle goes there with uh, the confidence that we're not going to damage or hurt the spinal cord. And we get a small amount of fluid and for diagnosis and, and then leave. But for that, we need the knowledge of the spinal cord ends at L1, L2, and you have to find the place between lower vertebrae. <coughs> so the end of the spinal cord is called the conus medullaris, at the tip point, final portion. But then from the conus medullaris, we find the terminale, which is a ligament that extends to the coccyx and is anchoring the spinal cord to the coccyx. On both sides, extension of the innermost meanings, called the pia mater, these extensions are called denticular ligaments, they secure the f- spinal cord to both sides of the dura So The spinal cord is not just floating there, it's well fixed by the terminale below, denticular ligaments in both sides. And from the spinal cord, we see spinal nerves coming out in both sides. The nerves are part of the peripheral nervous system. There are 31 spinal nerves. And the reason of the enlargements, cervical and lumbar enlargement of the spinal cord is because there is more concentration of fibers and neurons Uh, that go to the upper limb, cervical to the upper limb, and lumbar to the lower limb. Cotequina is all this collection of roots, nerve roots, at the end of the spinal cord. Again, we see the picture of the spinal cord with the segments, the enlargements, and the structures called the conus medullaris, cautequina, and phylum terminale. Now, what's inside the spinal cord? Let's see what's inside. If we make a transverse section, a cross-section of the spinal cord, we will see that there are some things to notice. First, the gray matter is in the core, and the white matter is in the outside. That's different than the brain. Remember, the brain has the white matter in the core and gray matter around it. There are two um, grooves running anterior and posterior. The anterior is called median fissure, the posterior is called median sulcus, and a central canal. Because remember the nervous system develops from a single tube, and it still retains that shape. Here we see a cross-section of the spinal cord, including the vertebrae, and we can see this gray matter in the core which has the shape of a letter h and surrounded by white matter now here we can see the meninges and how they are arranged here around the spinal cord pia mater the innermost arachnoid in the middle and the dura mater the outermost and there is a space between the bone the vertebra and the, the Ar- mater, That space is called epidural space. Epidural space. This is where the epidural anesthesia is given. The epidural anesthesia, which is used for labor and uh, delivery, is given to this space. So we don't want to block sensitivity of the spinal cord. We want to block the nerve. So if we inject the anesthetic there, the anesthetic is not reaching the spinal cord. It just goes around the dura. It's not getting inside. It goes around the dura, and it blocks the nerves. The nerves are going to the uh, skin of the abdomen, pelvis, organs of the pelvis, and lower limbs. Now, seeing the components, gray matter, the gray matter is divided or described as having these projections, posterior, dorsal, and ventral and lateral projections called dorsal horn, ventral horn, and lateral horn. And around the gray matter, we have white matter, white matter that are described in white columns. There is one dorsal, there is one ventral, and there is a lateral funiculus. That's how we describe the different parts of the gray matter and white matter at the cross-section of the spinal cord. And then we see a spinal nerves. The spinal nerves are formed by two roots, a dorsal root and a ventral root coming out of the spinal cord. They get together, they get together and, and what we call the spinal nerve which is just going outside. In the dorsal root, we have a dilation which is called the dorsal root ganglion or DRG and it contains neurons. There are sensory neurons here in the dorsal root ganglion. Sensory neurons. And the posterior or dorsal And now these two roots get together and that's when we have a spinal nerve coming out of the spinal cord. This is a description that we saw in the picture. The letter H for the gray matter divided in three areas, the dorsal horn, the ventral horn, and lateral horn. And what type of neurons we have here? In the dorsal horn interneurons that receive sensory input, somatic and visceral, from the muscles, skin, and from organs. The ventral horn, interneurons, but the main thing is that there are motor neurons here, somatic motor neurons, which send orders to the muscles. And lateral horn, which contains neurons, of the sympathetic nervous system, autonomic nervous system, that we will study uh, next week. And this is how the nerves, the spinal nerves are formed. Ventral roots, dorsal roots. The ventral roots contain the axons of motor neurons. Dorsal roots contain Axons from sensory neurons that are getting inside the spinal cord, going to the spinal cord. Dorsal root ganglia, as I said, there are neurons here, sensory neurons in the dorsal root ganglia. And the spinal nerves is a fusion of dorsal and ventral roots. There's a special distribution of the neurons in the gray matter, depending on if they are somatic, visceral, sensory, or motor. And that's what we see here. The different colors are showing different neurons and how they are distributed in the gray matter. SS are somatic sensory, VS, visceral sensory, sensations from the organs, VM, visceral motor, that's sympathetic autonomic nervous system. They control the organs, like contraction of the intestines um, and urinary system. And SM for somatic motor neurons, that is where neurons that control movement of the upper limb, lower limb, muscles in general, are located. And you see how the fibers run or come out through the dorsal root and ventral root fusing into spinal nerve. The white matter. The white matter is composed by axons, which may be myelinated and some non-myelinated, but the myelin is the one that gives the appearance of white matter. And they run in different directions. There are ascending pathways or fibers which are sensory, descending, which are motor, and transverse that go from one side to another. They are called commissural fibers. They connect both sides of the spinal cord. In a cross-section, the white matter is divided, as we saw in the picture, in columns or funiculi. There's a dorsal column, a lateral column, and a ventral column. And each tract is associated with some specific function and destination. Again, the view of the white columns, white matter here, and gray matter, and what are the names given to each area and each section. This is the distribution of ascending and descending tracts, the different colors. The blue are ascending and the red are descending. They have specific names, they have specific names and uh, they're usually named according to the destination. For instance, this is spinothalamic tracts which are two, lateral and ventral. As the name says, a spinal thalamic, from the spine, from the spinal cord to the thalamus. So these are ascending sensory. They are bringing information, sensory information, from the skin to the thalamus. Or spinal cerebellar, from the spinal cord to the cerebellum. These are detecting changes in the posture, muscular tone, all of our sensations. And the red ones, like the corticospinal or pyramidal, from the cortex to the spinal cord. That's why it's corticospinal. Vestibulospinal, from the vestibular nucleus in the medulla oblongata to the spinal cord. Or tectospinal, from the midbrain to the spinal cord. So there are many different tracts that are running up and down in the white matter of the spinal cord. Imagine someone having a problem in the spinal cord, like a trauma, lesion, or section, or damage, and the lateral aspect of the spinal cord. All these functions may be affected in some or more degree. And the spinal cord is also very, very sensitive, very fragile as the brain. Regarding lesions, trauma to the spinal cord, we have some described here. paresthesias and paralysis. Paresthesia is a symptom caused by damage to sensory tracts. Paresthesia is described as loss of sensory function. The patient describes that it feels numb in that area of the skin, let's say. I don't feel that. If you touch and you don't feel anything, that's a paresthesia. And it's a lesion, probably the sensory, sensory tract. Paralysis, there is damage to the ventral roots or the ventral horn cells. The ventral horn that contains the motor uh, neurons. And of course, paralysis means no movement in the muscles of some part of the body, which may be of two types, flaccid or spastic. The flaccid, which means that the Let's say the upper limb is completely flaccid, you can just move it and then the patient cannot move it at all, but you can move it in any direction, completely flaccid. And the other type is spastic, so the patient remains like this and you cannot move it. It's difficult. Flaccid paralysis occurs when there is damage to the ventral root or the ventral horn cells. And the spastic paralysis means damage to the upper motor neurons, the primary motor cortex. So people with stroke, that have problems up here. They usually have paralysis, but it's spastic. So the limb, the lower limb or upper limb are contracted like this. That's the difference between these two types of trauma in the motor function. Now worse things may happen like a transection or cross section of the spinal cord. That may happen and it's usually at two areas, the cervical level, the cervical level and at the lumbar level. Vertebrae may fracture, dislocate, and then slide over each other and compress the spinal cord. Sometimes it cuts the spinal cord. If the transaction happens between T1 and L1, then we see paraplegia, which is paralysis of both lower limbs. If there is a problem in the spinal cord between the T1 level, thoracic one, and lumbar L1, we see paraplegia, paralysis of both lower limbs. And if the problem is in the cervical region, That is called quadriplegia, which is a loss of function in both, I mean in the four limbs, two upper limbs and two lower limbs. Now sometimes, as as well as in concussion in the brain, patients may come after an accident, like a car accident, they were driving and someone hits them or anyway, and they complain of back pain and they cannot move both legs at all. Both lower limbs are, and they don't feel anything in the legs, and they cannot move it, and they're very scared because they say, I'm not I'm going to be uh, uh, disabled all my life. Well, we take CT scans, and studies, and we see the spinal cord is okay. okay. Yeah, there may be a fracture of the vertebrae or, or so, but the spinal cord looks fine. And that's called spinal shock. It's a temporary moment, transient period of functional loss. One day after, two days after, three days after, patient starts recovering sensations and motion uh, progressively. It was just a spinal shock. So we cannot arrive to conclusions so soon and say that this person has a spinal cord damage. We have to wait and see how it goes. Of course, after we see that there's no lesion in the imaging, CT scan, or MRI. Now, the way that these... Pathways are organized, is what follows. And there are some neurons, there are some neurons, and that's what we call a pathway. It's an ascending pathway that connects different neurons. And regarding ascending pathways, which are sensory, the chain contains three neurons. The first neuron, or first order neuron, is the one that brings the impulses from the receptors in the skin, proprioceptors, which are in the muscles, gets into the spinal cord and connects with the next neuron, which is called the uh, second-order neuron. Second-order neuron is an interneuron. It's in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And then the axons from the second-order neuron go up up to connect to the third order neuron, which is in the thalamus. From the thalamus, the chain continues to the cerebral cortex, but there are three neurons involved in these ascending pathways. And they go through different dorsal, um, different columns like the dorsal column, spinothalamic, that provide discriminatory touch, conscious proprioception. Thanks to these pathways that we feel whatever we touch and are able to be aware of our position. We're standing, we're sitting, we're laying down. And some other tracks, like a third pathway, they go to the cerebellum. Because they have to inform about the position of our body. These are somatosensory signals, ascending pathways. Two that go bring in somatosensory information, all sensations from the body, and the third to the cerebellum to inform about the position. The dorsal column median lemniscal pathway. They are the ones in the, in the posterior aspect of the spinal cord, white matter. They are for discriminated touch and vibrations. And the spinothalamic pathways, which are lateral and ventral in the white matter, they carry all these sensations, pain, temperature, pressure, coarse touch, not fine touch, coarse touch, And the spinocerebellar is the third pathway that brings information to the cerebellum about the position of our body, muscular tone, um, degree of contraction, or flexion, <coughs> extension of the joints, to coordinate the muscle activity. And this graph is showing the chain of three neurons. The all the sequence is shown here. The first order neuron is in the dorsal root ganglion. The second order neuron, this is for the spinal cerebellar. It goes to the cerebellum. And the second order neuron for this one is here, the medulla. And the third order neuron is up here in the thalamus. And from here, it goes to the cerebral cortex, somatosensory cortex. So this chain of three neurons is described in the ascending pathways. First one in the dorsal root ganglion, the second in the medulla oblongata, and the third in the thalamus. This is specific for the spinothalamic pathway, where the first order neuron is in the dorsal root ganglion. The second order neuron is an interneuron in the spinal cord. And the third of the neuron is in the thalamus. Again, we see the chain of three neurons before the signal gets into the cerebral cortex. Now, the descending pathways are of two types, direct and indirect. Motor pathways involve two neurons. One neuron located in the primary motor cortex, which are called pyramidal cells, and the lower motor neurons, which are in the spinal cord, in the ventral horn of the spinal cord. So for movement of the muscles, we need at least a connection of two neurons. Direct pyramidal starts in the Precentral gyrus and descend without synapsing until the spinal cord. In the spinal cord, it connects to interneurons or straight to ventral horn neurons. So these direct pathways control movements, which are fast, maybe fine, skilled movements of the muscles. And we can see them here, the upper motor neuron, pyramidal cell, and the cerebral cortex. And then we see the pyramidal tract coming down, the decusation of the pyramids happening here in the medulla oblongata. We see how this fiber gets to the other side. And then connects to a lower, lower motor neuron, which is in the spinal cord and from there, it goes to the muscles. Yeah? It in, the, in the precentral gyrus, In the precentral gyrus. And ends in the? And ends in the spinal cord, and the ventral horn of the spinal cord. Those are the two neurons of the pyramidal tracts. Direct. The indirect, they involved. They involved other connections. And that's why they're called multi-synaptic. There are neurons in the brain stem that control this. There are many synapses, many connections here. And why for? What for? To make sure that we keep the balance, the posture, control movements of the limbs, movements of the head, neck, eye movements that go along with movements of your muscles. Let's say you are turning around to see something, you move the muscles of your neck, you move the muscles of your eyes also at the same time, you may move muscles of the whole body to turn around. So that needs more pathways, more coordination of movements, and that's why the indirect pathways. There are reticulospinal, vestibulospinal to maintain balance and posture, spinal for the flexor muscles, and tectospinal because they involve superior collicula from the midbrain in response to head movements. That's what I was saying. You move your head to look for something and you have to move the whole body, the neck, the body, the muscles of, of the trunk and even the limbs. They are indirect pathways. So for instance, this one called the rubrospinal comes from the red nucleus of the midbrain. And connects to the spinal cord motor neuron and from there to the muscle. Questions, comments? Okay, let's have a break. In the meantime, I'm going to bring all the material for the lab. I'm going to put the handouts here so you can. Thank right.